This is the Common Sense Body Podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Notley. Uh, today is Sunday, July 25th. Uh, today we're going to talk about Matt Gates, uh, Dr. Fauci, Chump uh, CFO, uh, how the FBI botched um, Kavanaugh's background check, and Texas is removing removing um teaching the KKK in high school and many more we are also trying to see why the Republicans are blocking a vote just to talk about it and the Republicans are looking for a fall guy. This is the Common Sense Party Podcast. Please rate us, review us on Google, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Our mission is to put some common sense into this ordinary day life so we can make good decisions. And here we go. All is lost. Not while I'm standing. Today we are starting out with Dr. Fauci. Why are they trying to make him a fall guy? I really don't understand. The country is going back to where we're going to have to use masks, but the Republicans are trying to make him a fall guy. In various committee meetings, uh, I guess uh, Rand Paul and the GOP are trying to uh, I guess make him the scapegoat because they they don't want to take responsibility for their response in Congress, COVID knowing that is a- uh, uh, the next clip is from NBC News and check it out Dr. Fauci knowing that it is a crime to lie to Congress do you wish to retract your statement of May 11th where you claimed that the NIH never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan? Senator Paul, I have never lied before the Congress, and I do not retract that statement. This paper that you are referring to was judged by qualified staff up and down the chain as not being gain-of-function. What was? Let me finish. Take an animal virus and you increase its transmissibility to humans. Right. You're saying that's not gain of function. Yeah, that is correct. And and Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about, quite frankly. And I want to say that officially, you do not know what you are talking about. Okay. You get one person. Let's read for the NIH definition of gain of function. This is your definition that you guys wrote. It says that scientific research that increases the transmissibility among mammals is gain of function. They took animal viruses that only occur in animals 
and they increase their transmissibility to humans. How you can say that is not gain of function? It is not. It's a dance, and you're dancing around this because you're trying to obscure responsibility for four million people dying around the world okay. from a pandemic. Unless that's in Dr. Fauci. I have to. Well, now you're getting into something. If the point that you are making is that the the, the grant that was funded as a sub award from EcoHealth to Wuhan created SARS-CoV-2, that's where you are getting. Let me finish. We don't know. Well, we don't wait know a minute. It didn't I come from the lab, but all you. the evidence is pointing that it came from the lab. You, and there will be responsibility for those who funded the lab, including yourself. I totally. This committee resent, will allow the witness to. Respond. I totally resent the lie that you are now propagating, Senator, because if you look at the viruses that were used in the experiments, that were given in the annual reports that were published in the literature, it is molecularly impossible. No one's saying those it, viruses it is, caused it. It no is molecularly. Those virus caused the pandemic. What we're alleging is that gain of function research was going on in that lab and NIH funded it. That is and not. get away from it. It meets your definition and you are obfuscating the truth. I'm not obfuscating the truth. Senator you are the one. Time is expired, but I will allow the witness to. Let me just finish. I want everyone to understand that if you look at those viruses, and that's judged by qualified virologists and evolutionary biologists. Those viruses are molecularly impossible no one's to result are. No in SARS-CoV-2. The We're saying they are gain-of-function viruses because they were they're animal not. viruses that became more transmissible in human, and you funded it. And you admit the truth. And you implying... Paul, your time has expired, and I will allow witnesses right. who come before this committee to respond. And, and you are implying that what we did was responsible for the deaths of individual I totally resent and that. Have and if anybody and is lying here, Senator, it is you. There you go. They're trying to make him a fall guy. Okay. What they allege is that the company he works for gave a grant to Wuhan, China to, to study, study drugs or study viruses. And what he's saying is what they do is not impossible. I wouldn't say it's impossible, but guess what? Anything's possible. But what they're trying to do is shift the blame, move the goalposts. Okay, so yeah, there's a pandemic because they weren't like this when SARS came out. Absolutely not. But how can you tell someone who has 40 years of experience what they did and they're explaining to you, it went to a review board, I guess an independent review board, and they said no. You just want to run with your, I guess, your talking points. But, hey, it is what it is. Again, let's put the common sense to it. And the Republicans are trying to uh, shake the, get the boogeyman. That's their, that's their fall guy. That's their enemy now because they're selling T-shirts in Florida. Our next take is from CNN. Let's check this out. Senator Rand Paul, well, he tried to make Dr. Anthony Fauci into his personal punching bag today as they went head-to-head -head over the senator's bogus claims that the National Institutes of Health somehow played a role in funding research that led to the origins of the pandemic. And Dr. Fauci was definitely not having it. Dr. Fauci, knowing that it is a crime to lie to Congress, do you wish to retract your statement of May 11th where you claimed that the NIH never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan? 
Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about, quite frankly. And I want to say that officially. You do not know what you are talking about. This is a pattern that Senator Paul has been doing now at multiple hearings based on no reality. He keeps talking about gain of function. This has been evaluated multiple times by qualified people to not fall under the gain of function definition. I have not lied before Congress. I have never lied, certainly not before Congress. You are implying that what we did was responsible for the deaths of individual. I totally resent and that. And if anybody and is have. lying here, Senator, it is you. Well, what is wrong with Rand Paul? Seriously. I know that's what you at home are thinking, because I'm thinking the same thing. What's wrong with him? What is he trying to prove? There's nothing to prove there. And he keeps embarrassing himself. Rand Paul, stop it. You look like an idiot. The lying, the misinformation, it's why we can't bridge the political gap. Even though our lives are at stake and you still have people who are acting like Rand Paul. Joining me now to discuss CNN's medical analyst, Dr. Jonathan Reiner. He is the director of the cardiac catheterization program at George Washington University Hospital. It's always a pleasure to have him on. Thank you, doctor, I appreciate it. Doctor, you know, this is not the first time the two men have gone at it. Listen to this and then we'll talk. Let me just state for the record that masks are not theater. Masks are protective. And we, we have ask immunity there, theater. If you already have immunity, you're wearing a mask to give comfort to others. You're not wearing a mask because of any sign. I, I totally disagree with you. Dr. Fauci, do you still support funding of the NIH funding of the lab in Wuhan? Senator Paul, with all due respect, you are entire, entirely and completely incorrect. Dr. Fauci, knowing that it is a crime to lie to Congress, do you wish to retract your statement of May 11th where you claimed that the NIH never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan? Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about, quite frankly, and I want to say that officially. You do not know what you are talking about. Okay, so Dr. Ryan. Dr. Ryan, you're a doctor. Rand Paul is supposedly a doctor, and yet he is picking these fights. Why does he continue to beclown himself, and how is this helping the federal COVID response? Well, it obviously doesn't help the COVID response, Tom. Uh, look, from the almost from the outset, uh, Senator Paul has been trying to you know, deflect or, or sort of uh, mask the uh, prior administration's disastrous response and, and sort of throw blame on uh, others, and particularly uh, Dr. Tony Fauci. And what he did dishonestly today was really conflate two issues. You know, he, he raised this issue of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease support for uh, a research uh, lab at that Wuhan Institute and he tried uh, to basically you know, link that to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. He tried to make it sound like the research the, that was occurring under the support of NIH led to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And that's what uh, enraged uh, Dr. Fauci, uh, uh, you know, understandably so. Uh, he's, you know, he's really, you know, uh, Senator Paul, is the person who, while he was waiting for his uh, COVID lab results uh, to come back, decided it was a great idea to take a swim in the Senate pool. Uh, he's the person that during the hottest days of the virus in January, refused to wear a mask on the Senate floor. 
And to this day, he has refused to be vaccinated, claiming that he has all the immunity that he needs. Look, he picks a fight with somebody who, you know, uh, is uh, perhaps the world's expert on this topic and something that he really knows very little about. A pediatrician group finding 23,000 children caught the coronavirus last week. And I just want you to listen to what the CDC director is saying about that today. Here it is. One thing I just want to note with the children is um, I, I think we fall into this um, flawed thinking of saying that only 400 of these 600,000 deaths from COVID-19 have been in children. Um, children are not supposed to die. And so 400 is, is a huge amount for a, for a, season, a respiratory season. Dr. Ronner, I know a lot of parents took comfort earlier in this pandemic that kids weren't getting sick. But she is making a very good point there. Children are still in danger, right? I mean, how do people, how should people be thinking about this? Yeah, I mean, 400 uh, uh, fatalities in children is an enormous toll. Uh, the worst year on record for flu was two years ago and 188 children died, and that was unacceptable. So the way to think about it is this, Don. Even though the case fatality rate for uh, COVID in children is very low, if you multiply that very low number by a very large number of infections, uh, we'll see a completely unacceptable, tragic number of children die. So even if only you know, 0.001% of children die, if millions of children become infected, we'll see a, a you know, tragic, horrible a number of children getting very sick and dying. That's the point that Dr. Walensky was trying to make. Uh, again, and the CDC director, Dr. Walensky, saying today um, that, the, that the highly transmissible Delta variant now makes up 83% of new COVID cases. That's up from 58% earlier this month. This variant is clearly highly transmissible. What do both vaccinated and unvaccinated people need to know, doctor? So vaccinated people uh, need to know that uh, they are very well protected. It is extraordinarily unlikely that they will uh, become ill. It's actually unlikely that they will become infected. It's much more unlikely that they will become ill and almost impossible for them to die. The uh, unvaccinated need to know that you can die from this virus. It is much more transmissible and uh, you can very well die. All the people in hospitals now essentially are unvaccinated around the country. There were 7,000 new cases in Florida today. In, in, a, in two weeks, we're going to start to see, again, unacceptably high uh, levels of death coming out of the South and Southwest and up through the Midwest in this country. It doesn't have to happen. This is happening in unvaccinated people. We have the answer. It's just the shot. Get the shot. Yep. Uh, we went a little on a tangent about COVID. Yeah, you guys go get that shot again. I disagree. You will get sick. You just won't die if you're vaccinated. But if you're unvaccinated, you will go to the hospital and possibly die. So go get that shot. I suggest Pfizer. I don't trust any other ones. And and please, yeah, what he said, 400 kids is too much. Can't have our kids dying. Okay, moving on to our next story. Uh, Matt Gates, the pedophile, and... Marjorie Taylor Greene, the psycho, got punked on 
I guess, uh, speaking tour or whatever. Uh, let's go to the damage report and check it out. Oh my god, I'm so, I'm so excited! I'm so excited! I mean, this all. Oh, everyone thinks you're crazy. I don't think you're crazy. People think you're a pedophile. I don't think you're a pedophile at all. I don't think he's a pedophile at all. They're tons against him. are totally false. They're totally false. Oh my god. That is awesome. That's what I'm talking about. Go ahead and clown the asses, because that's what they are. Yeah, it's a comedian in California. See how they do How you get them? Get them with their ego. Just get them with their ego. That's all you got to do. Okay, our next story is from the damage report. Begin. Uh, uh, this one is how much money they're spending. They are spending money. So check this out. And Matt Gates, two right wing members of Congress, have engaged in this joint fundraising effort. It's a tour that they've uh, really gotten a lot of attention for in California because four different venues in Orange County have canceled them. But the whole point was to raise money for the Republican Party, for their campaigns, and it turns out that the opposite is happening. This might just be nothing more than a vanity project for them, and it's costing them quite a bit of money. So since Gates and Green kicked off their joint fundraising committee with a May 7th event at the Villages in Central Florida, their campaigns and joint fundraising committee have posted a combined loss of $342,000. According to recent filings with the Federal Elections Commission, Federal Election Commission, that joint fundraising effort put America First reported only $59,345.54 in contributions. Now, that sort of meager haul would be fine for a dinner or a one-time event, but Gates and Green have repeatedly held high-profile events and spent a whopping $287,000 $36.19 to hold them, meaning they're in the hole by more than $225,000. So they're losing money. The question is, if this is supposed to be about fundraising and it turns out that they've been losing money, why are they doing it? And I pose that question to you, Dr. Ritchie. Because they're twiddle D and twiddle dumb. <laughs> That's why. Um, they thought they were going to make money. At they did this whole thing because they literally thought they could go around the country, call it America First, and make a bunch of money. As a matter of fact, the scheduling tour, uh, if they would have hit their markers, they would have been swimming in cash. They would have been close to a million bucks right now. Now, but the cancellations, uh, the lack of support, uh, and generally, and I'm glad to see this, by the, by the way, generally, uh, the leadership of the Republican Party um, who can be very good at helping you raise money, they have not been supportive of this effort at all. But let's not forget, Matt Gates is under investigation yep. uh, for being a pedophile. Allegedly. Let, let's be very clear. Allegedly, right? He He's under investigation for that, allegedly. Uh, and you have Marjorie Taylor Greene, who can't put one policy sentence together. And so when they get these cancellations, Anna, they're saying things like on social media, come support us outside of this random ass building as we fight <laughs> communism. Uh, no, no, as, as we fight, um, we just got canceled and we don't have anywhere to go. So can you meet us at this random location? And then like 10 or 20 people show up. Yep, the people are speaking. They won't support them. Uh, I guess I like it because you got a pedophile and a moron trying to 
run the country, but what does that say about us? We put them in office. Well, the Georgia, yeah, and Florida, yeah, we expected, but the one thing about politics or someone in politics, you send someone who's smarter than you, and I don't understand. How are these people smarter than you? What does that say for the country? Uh, and uh, the next one is about Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, how she is anti-Semitic. Check it out. On evil lunacy. That is how Republican Liz Cheney described new statements from Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. Evil lunacy. And to be honest, Cheney was being polite. Because Green, whose understanding of comparative religion includes a belief of Jewish space lasers, equated mask requirements in the House to the Holocaust. You know, we can look back at a time in history where people were told to wear a gold star, and they were definitely treated like second-class citizens, so much so that they were put in trains and taken to gas chambers in Nazi Germany. And this is exactly the type of abuse that Nancy Pelosi is talking about. Now, this is not only a historic, it's abhorrent, John. It is not only a historic, it is abhorrent. It's also apparently allowable under House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who hasn't commented on it and refused to punish Green for past anti-Semitic statements she made. Wearing a mask compared to the murder of six million people, it's so far beyond the realm of decency, it could only possibly be made worse by comments from Marjorie Taylor Greene. I stand by all of my statements. I said nothing wrong. And I think any any rational Jewish person didn't like what happened in, in Nazi Germany. And any rational Jewish person doesn't like what's happening with overbearing mass mandates. Any rational Jewish person? I'm Jewish. I'm not at all religious. And thank God my family made it to this country decades before the Holocaust. But that's my heritage. And I promise you that Congresswoman Taylor Greene, she thinks I'm Jewish. So as a rational Jewish person, let me just say to Marjorie Taylor Greene, don't you dare speak for me. Not if you're going to compare health measures or anything to the Holocaust. In a tweet last night, she said, I'm sorry if my words make people uncomfortable. No, they don't make me uncomfortable. They make me sick. Essie, the comments of Marjorie Taylor Greene, they make my blood boil. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I don't know where to begin on that. I just don't. Um, well, let's begin with the disappointment that um, the GOP and Kevin McCarthy have not condemned what is so easily condemnable. Um, uh, if you can't come out strongly against this, I'm not sure what you could. But this is what anti-Semitism looks like. And this is not the first time she's trafficked in anti-Semitic tropes and ideas. If you take the comparison, it works both ways. Not only is she comparing mask mandates to the Holocaust, She's also comparing the Holocaust to mask mandates. That's how little she thinks of the persecution of the Jews in the Holocaust. I think looking at it that way is more revealing than simply the vulgar and obscene comparison she's trying to make. This is real rooted, a really rooted problem that uh, the GOP cannot just ignore. I think you actually identified the one part that I can wrap my arms around, right? Because, because I. I... I really can't fathom that there was a person in Congress who believes that who said that out yeah. loud, okay? But Mara, the fact that Kevin McCarthy, I, he hasn't said anything about this yet. Yeah. And by the way, she said stuff within this spectrum before and he was against her losing her committee post. 
McCarthy is letting this happen. Absolutely. No question about that, because this isn't the first time we've heard things like this. You know, this goes to show, yet again, there are very few political consequences for Marjorie Taylor Greene in making these kind of reckless, inflammatory, dangerous, hurtful statements. But there are some political benefits from her. Let us be, let's be clear about who she is. This is a clout-chasing Trump wannabe. She knows that controversy sells. She's seen what it's done for Trump's political career, and she is taking her cues from that playbook. So that's what we're seeing here with this. That's why we're seeing her double down on this. It's no coincidence that she continues to pick fights with AOC. I would argue not because of AOC's policy positions, but because she's one of the biggest political stars in the country, right? So Green is punching up, and she's seeking that attention, and that's what we keep seeing over and over again. And there are no bounds to what she will do to get that political attention because it continues to benefit her. We're talking about her now. It's worse because because with white supremacy on the rise and anti-Semitism, and anti-Semitic attacks on the rise. The GOP is using her to speak to those voters. They might publicly pretend they're ashamed of her, but they want her supporters and they want to satisfy and placate that growing wing of the Republican Party. It's such a good point. I think that Mara's making there that she's punching up and that Essie is making there as well, Kirsten. Yeah, I, I think that she, I mean, so first of all, I think she's also, we have to remember, she's harassing AOC, right? I mean, she's she's literally stalking her and harassing her. And I really think Nancy Pelosi needs to do something about this. I mean, it, it, it's not okay for one member of Congress to be harassing another member of Congress. I mean, that has to violate some sort of basic comedy rules, right, in Congress. Look, you know my rule, tip a table over once just once all you gotta do is tip a table over once and they won't they won't fuck with you no more yeah i agree she is punching up she's trying to get her clout chasing on but that's what the this society is that's how she got voted she got voted because she went on the internet people not reading the news people not trusting the news the ends does not justify the means that's why i rock with a, a democrat faster than a republican a republican has not ever made me money not one nah, maybe Bush the second Bush because he sent out checks but besides that no policy by a Republican has helped uh, people of color but it is what it is and AOC just needs to go ahead and tip a table over knock her ass out on the floor uh, she won't lose a job she probably gets suspended but I would then they'll understand alright this is the Common Sense Party Podcast. Uh, rate us, review us um, at Google, at Spotify. Give us five stars. Uh, make us a number one podcast in America. Uh, you can reach us at the Common Sense Party Pod at gmail.com. Or we're on Twitter now, so hit us up on Twitter. Also on IG and Facebook. All right, moving on to our next story. Uh, Trump CFO waves his right to remain solid. Okay, another one falls from the Trump organization. Are we giving Trump too much? Um, uh, I guess fodder or whatever it is, because he's just milking people out of money. Seventy-five million dollars this year. A half year to pay his legal fees and his uh, extravagant lifestyle. 
and he has a pension from the government, so... Hmm. All right, check this out. If a Weisselberg, revealing something we didn't know until today, that apparently, reportedly, as he sat for his processing, he did something you're never supposed to do. He talked to those investigators about the allegations against him of misappropriating income, of abusing free apartments from the company. And in a court filing, we're learning prosecutors write that Weisselberg stated the commute to work from Long Island was difficult as part of his rationale. Weisselberg basically seeming to admit at least part of the elements of the crime he's accused of, that he was getting those perks. And let's be clear, forgetting rule number one for any defendant, you might want to exercise your right to remain silent. You're under arrest. You have the right to remain silent. If you give up that right, anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to remain silent. I choose to waive that right. No! Don't tell him nothing, man! Darling! Don't, don't say nothing! David, I don't think you need fancy lawyers, as our montage suggests. People know uh, about this Miranda right. Mr. Weisselberg avoided comment throughout and now reportedly did speak out. I'm curious what you think of A, that choice, um, and B, whether this is a human side of him that uh, against the advice of counsel, he felt like he needed to blurt something. Well, having just driven on the Long Island Expressway this past weekend, I know it's not an easy drive, but that doesn't allow you to cheat on your taxes. Um, if so, there'd be a lot of cheating on taxes in Suffolk and Nassau County. I mean, it, I, he, people want to justify their actions all the time. He's not going to, you know, fess up. And here he is. I mean, imagine he's been at the top of this food chain, you know, making a lot of money working for this famous guy who's now become president for, for decades, for decades. And it's all kind of crumbling. It's, it's affecting, you know, the family relationship. He's now been arrested. Uh, it must be, you know, from a human perspective, hard to process, hard to deal with. And he doesn't want to be thought of as a bad guy. So I guess he just felt obligated or felt he had the urge to, um, to speak out. I don't think it was the urge to confess his sins. We see that rarely happens mm. in legal set settings. But, uh, you know, from his point of view, and I think this is probably true for Trump and everybody else, they do these things. I bet Tom Barrett thinks he didn't do anything wrong. They don't think this is wrong. They either they think they're entitled, or they think the rules are loose, or they think everybody does it. And Trump has made it a mantra. If you can get away with it, it's not wrong. Right. So um, it doesn't surprise me that Weisselberg, as Trump often does, just sort of says he did, you know, he did these things without, you know, right. without realizing it's, it's truly an admission of, of guilt. Yep. He waived his right and he said what he said. He might get arrested for it. Not might get, he might be convicted for it. Because uh, Trump's not going to come to his defense. Uh, moving on to our next story. Um, wasteful spending. You know what wasteful spending is? What the Republicans say the Democrats are doing now. But guess what? Republicans are wasting our taxpayer dollars about this damn election. Uh, we're going to go to MSNBC for the next story. Check it out. Pennsylvania, a county um, in South Central Pennsylvania, right on the border with rural Maryland. They were just advised today by the state 
that the state has decertified their entire voting system. Their voting machines, the counting equipment, the software, everything. It's now decertified and cannot legally be used in any future election. They have to buy all new stuff. And that's because local Republican officials in that one little county, they handed over all the voting equipment in that county to a random, uncertified private company to do some kind of, you know, wizardy Spanish Inquisition on the county's machines. This was after pro-Trump Republicans in the Pennsylvania State Senate demanded that. The Trump Republicans in the State Senate had demanded other counties in Pennsylvania do that too, but it was just this, this one little really pro-Trump Republican county that said, yes, yes, we want to do that. And now that one small county in South Central Pennsylvania has this giant expense they've got to bear on their own to replace every single piece of voting equipment that they've got in the entire county. Because in their rush to participate in the Trump fantasy that the election shouldn't have counted and there's some monster you can find in the machines that will show it, they've now ensured that their voting equipment cannot be used to count anything ever again. Well done. But the same thing happened just last month in one of the biggest counties in the country, in Maricopa County, Arizona, which is the fourth largest county in the country by population. They, too, had their entire voting system decertified, and they, too, need to buy all new everything for elections after Trump Republicans in the state Senate forced them to turn over their entire voting system and all the ballots from the presidential election to a random, uncertified, totally inexperienced, one-man band company called Cyber Ninjas, even though it's really just one guy, so it should be Cyber Ninja. Arizona taxpayers will therefore be shelling out millions of dollars to replace all of that equipment, which will now have to be junked because those guys have been doing Lord knows what with it since they got their hands on it in April. April. They started that scam audit thing in Arizona in April. They said it would take three weeks. It's July. <laughs> and nobody seems to know what they're up to anymore. They don't really feel the need to update anybody anymore because every time they do, they're like, we're looking for the bamboo, and the whole country laughs at them. So they don't give any updates anymore. But they haven't said they're done. What are they doing? What are they planning on doing with whatever results they finally announce? Well, the day after tomorrow, former President Donald Trump is going to Maricopa County, Arizona. This is his first trip to Arizona since he lost re-election. Uh, with the help of his loss in that swing state. He's going to Arizona on Saturday to hype the Cyber Ninja audit there at what he's calling a rally to protect our elections. The Arizona Republic sort of gently puts it to their readers, quote, Trump continues to falsely claim he did not lose the 2020 election and sees the Arizona Review as a mechanism to spread his unfounded theory and perhaps reinstate him and former Republican U.S. Senator Martha McSally to office. You and who? Raise your hand if you think not just Trump, but Martha McSally is going to be returned triumphantly to Washington because of whatever the guy from Cyber Ninjas is going to say. Raise your hand. Now, I can see all of you through the TV screen because I am Q, and as Q, I have the power to see backwards through cameras. What? So I can see that very few of you have your hands up right now. Very few of you actually think that Trump and Martha McSally will be reinstated by this process of pro-Trump Republicans trashing voting equipment and spewing conspiracy theories about communist ballots being airdropped from Italy or whatever, asked Mike Flynn. I can see that you don't believe it, many of you. But enough diehard Trump supporters do believe it. 
to make this a very lucrative gig. The Arizona Republic reports tonight that one of the Republican state senators in Arizona who's been promoting the audit thing in Arizona all along, he's now selling t-shirts promoting his cause. The cost of his t-shirts? Well, it's a sliding scale by size. They're 35 to $45 for a t-shirt. Wow! Order yours today. It's $35 for a small or $45 for a double extra large, which frankly just seems rude. The Washington Post tonight reports that former President Trump appears to have found a tidy path through the wreckage to pay his living expenses via this nonsense that he continues to stoke. Here's the headline in the Post tonight, quote, Trump's PAC, Political Action Committee, collected $75 million this year, but so far the group has not put money into pushing for the 2020 ballot reviews he touts. Here's the lead. Former President Donald Trump's political PAC raised about $75 million in the first half of this year as he trumpeted the false notion that the 2020 election was stolen from him. But the PAC has not devoted funds to help finance the ongoing ballot review in Arizona or to push for similar endeavors in other states, according to people familiar with the finances. Instead, the Save America Leadership PAC, which has few limits on how it can spend its money, instead of paying for the actual like you know audits and stuff what it's instead paying for is some of the former president's travel legal costs and staff along with other expenses according to the people who spoke on the condition of anonymity to describe the group's inner workings so dude is raising money for this pack save america by saying he needs to save america and the way he's going to save america is you need to give him money so he can fund these efforts to overturn the election results so he can be rightfully reinstated along with Martha McSally. <laughs> but then he's not actually spending any of the money on anything like that at all. What is he using it to pay for again though? What's the list there? The PAC is being spent, the PAC money is being spent on quote, the former president's travel, legal costs, and staff, and other expenses. Yeah other expenses <laughs> stop the steal buy me lunch quote since leaving office trump has repeatedly pushed for various states to overturn the election results sending out a blizzard of statements with unsubstantiated claims of voter fraud he has consulted with state officials in arizona pennsylvania and georgia is that what we call it consulting and he has described state ballot reviews as the key to prove he won the 2020 election. His political group has repeatedly urged donors to give by claiming that Trump is working to protect their vote. Fundraising pitches that his advisors say remain the most lucrative. One recent Facebook ad says, quote, we need you to join the fight to secure our elections. Yeah, join the fight to secure our elections. Pay for my private jet gas. <laughs> Buy me a sandwich. Pay for my staff and my other expenses. Save America. That is a that is a world-class grift, man. Yeah, we gotta get the information out. Those people are paying for someone who's rich. That's supposedly rich anyway. I don't understand. Trickle-down economics does not work. This is how pastors do it. Those mega church pastors, they they milk the, the the congregation for private jets. That's what they do. Joel Onstein, Creflo Dollar. Yeah, those ones. That's what they do. They they prey on the uneducated. But you know what? We gotta give them common sense. 
the common sense party mission is to let's apply common sense to politics uh, this is a common sense party podcast rate us review us give us five stars we're on spotify google wherever you find your podcast also facebook ig and twitter our next story is how under trump's administration the fbi ignores tips yeah that dude who cried in front of congress a liar knows a liar and check this out seven democratic senators on thursday said that newly released materials show the fbi failed to fully investigate sexual misconduct allegations against supreme court justice brett kavanaugh when he was nominated to the court in 2018. The senators, including Sheldon Whitehouse and Chris Coons, said a letter they received from the FBI last month shows the agency gathered over 4,500 tips relating to Kavanaugh without any apparent further action by investigators. Written by FBI Assistant Director Jill Tyson, the letter said the most relevant of the 4,500 tips were referred to lawyers in President Donald Trump's White House whose handling of them remains unclear. She added that the FBI had conducted a background check, not a criminal investigation. So, quote, the authorities' policies and procedures used to investigate criminal matters did not apply. That didn't sit well with Democrats, who sent a letter to FBI Director Christopher Wray this week, in which Coons wrote, quote, If the FBI was not authorized to or did not follow up on any of the tips that it received from the tip line, it is difficult to understand the point of having a tip line at all. Kavanaugh's nomination blew up into a personal and political drama when university professor Christine Blasey Ford accused him of sexually harassing her in 1982. Kavanaugh denied the allegations in angry and tearful testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Neither Kavanaugh nor Ford were interviewed for the FBI probe, and Democrats have long thought it was a sham. An FBI spokesperson did not immediately respond to a request for comment on Thursday. A lawyer for Kavanaugh during his confirmation battle also did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Ford's lawyer said in a statement that the new revelations show the FBI investigation was of limited value. Yep. That's what they did. They didn't do their job. They went ahead and let him, I guess, get in to a lifetime appointment. Let's get him through. Her and him and the other one. Hopefully, Joe Biden will expand the court so they can. They can, um balance the court off because you can't have it right leaning on all our policies such as Roe versus Wade um, DACA all that stuff but this is why we got to apply pressure on them um, vote Democrat or because some of the Democrats they they want the corporate money also so let's get them out all the ones that are not moving forward with um, with what the people need and our next story is how the Texas 
government is trying to whitewash history. Uh, they're trying to remove, I guess, MLK. Uh, well, they want to whitewash it. That's enough. Check this out. Flash directed at Texas Republicans today. This is just one example. Former San Antonio Mayor Julian Castro says the governor is trying to erase MLK, Cesar Chavez, and Susan B. Anthony from the Texas curriculum and recast the KKK as the good guys. It's all part of a debate about what your kids should have to learn at school. Eyewitness News reporter Matt Houston breaks it down. Texas Republicans wanted to be sure teachers aren't telling your kids that white people are inherently racist. So this last session, they made a list of concepts public schoolers should and should not learn. To get that bill through the House, uh, the Republican authors allowed Democrats to tack on a whole host of other issues that the Democrats wanted to talk, talk about. It was a compromise, a limit on controversial discussion, mostly about race, in exchange for mandatory lessons about things like slavery and a woman's right to vote. But when the special session began, Republicans decided to cut lessons Democrats lobbied for. It looks like they are effectively banning the teaching of all these subjects. The new bill would not prevent teachers from talking about things like the KKK. They just wouldn't have to. But they never have before, since the legislature only mandated those lessons this May. Political scientists say it all begs a new question. Should the legislature be in the business of telling schools what they can and cannot teach? It, it depends, it can, it depends in, in what the schools are choosing to teach. This, this is a, a, a constant process where we're trying to find the right balance. If it passes, the bill would still force teachers to find that balance by presenting both sides of political arguments if they come up in class. Matt joins us now. And Matt, where does this bill stand? Now, that, well, remember, the Texas Senate is a little more conservative than the House. It is already cleared a Senate committee. It has just cleared the full Senate. And under more normal circumstances, we would say it is halfway through the regular political process. So, Matt, what are the odds this bill passes? That is the catch, because Republicans don't need Democrats to pass the bill, but they need Democrats just to have a vote. They're going to run into the same problem that they're running into with voter legislation right now, uh, where they're basically having this staring contest. Until Democrats come back from Washington, D.C., nothing is getting out of the legislature to the governor's desk. So uh, if the governor's true to his word, they call session after session after session. We're going to keep having this same debate over and over and over again until one side blinks or school starts. That's right. The Texas Democrats are out, but I saw a story where they, <clears throat> some of them returned home. And hopefully they stay away until midterms. That'll be great, but it won't happen. Okay. Uh, when I say whitewashing history, okay, that means that they don't want to seem that white people are inherently bad yes they are people in power doesn't give up power eagerly, uh, easily that's my mantra mm -hmm. yes slavery happened uh, they passing plane they came over and took the land from the Indians that's why the government pays their ancestors a monthly check they enslaved Japanese American during during um, World War II and what the government did they gave them money 
being wrongly falsely uh, imprisoned but they don't want to right the wrong for slavery they say they they okay with that uh, but anyways that's for another day uh, moving on um, we'll go to the hill and we're gonna check out the, the let's check the real facts on this check this out the Texas Senate has passed a bill that could limit what is taught in the classroom. Under Senate Bill 3, public schools are no longer required to teach that the Ku Klux Klan, slavery, or white supremacy are morally wrong. Also dropped from the curriculum is Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, writings from Cesar Chavez and Susan B. Anthony, and Native American history. Who knew that this campaign against CRT was not entirely on the up and up? <laughs> Democratic strategist and SVP at Firehouse Strategies, Michael Starr Hopkins, and senior policy analyst at the Independent Women's Forum, Kelsey Bowler, are with us to weigh in. Great to see you guys. Good morning. So, Michael, I, for one, am shocked. I, I was so sure that when Texas Republicans were taking up the banner of opposition to critical race theory, that they had dived deeply into, the, into that theory, and they had, they had found some flaws with it that they wanted to see corrected. Uh, before it started molding the minds of Texas's school children. Yet the Texas Senate seems to have taken it a bit further uh, than we originally thought. What, what's, what happened here? Look, I mean, I think at the end of the day, there's a whitewashing of history that's going on. And it's not just bad for politics, but it's bad for the country as a whole because we no longer have shared truths. When we don't have shared truths, we end up with things like January 6th. We end up with people having no faith in the government and no real understanding of how we got to where we are. We can't wipe away slavery. We can't wipe away what happened to Native Americans and ever expect to have reconciliation. And I think at the end of the day, that's the real problem. So, Kelsey, I'm looking at the text of the bill now, and there's a section in there that says, you know, nothing in the section may be construed as limiting the teaching or instruction of essential knowledge. But then it does say, you know, in adopting these essential knowledge and skills, you know, these documents shall be included in someone's civic education and goes to list them. You know, it includes everything from Alexis de Tocqueville to the reading of the Federal Civil Rights Act, Declaration of Independence, you know, the complexity of the historic relationship between Texas and Mexico. So what is your take on, on kind of what's going on here? Yeah, let's talk about what actually happened here and whether the framing of this entire segment is accurate or responsible. This was based on a Huffington Post news report uh, claiming uh, that Republicans are dropping the teaching that the KKK is morally wrong. Is that what they're actually doing? Are they banning the, that any, any uh, teacher from teaching their children that the KKK is wrong? Absolutely not. What happened here is that uh, normal legislative process, a state uh, Democrat lawmaker introduced an amendment uh, to this anti-CRT bill, and uh, that amendment said you must teach that the KKK is morally wrong. Uh, Republicans dropped that amendment, and this is something that happens in any legislative process. Uh, any responsible journalist knows this is typical, where uh, opposing lawmakers know they really have no chance of attaching certain provocative amendments uh, to legislative packages, but they'll do so anyways so that they get bad press. Uh, but 
the truth of the matter is that any responsible journalist knows uh, that's not actually what happened here, and that's why you only see the Huffington Post framing it like this. If you Google this story in any other responsible news outlet, they are not seeing that Republican lawmakers in Texas are trying to whitewash our history and ban uh, Texas schools from teaching that the KKK is wrong. Well, so the the K, I'm curious for your take on this. The KKK part aside, you know, if somebody uh, introduces a trolling amendment that says that you should say something obvious in your classroom, then just say just say the obvious thing. I think the more interesting point is what Rachel said is that it doesn't ban you from talking about the I have a dream speech if you're a teacher, but it took it from being on the curriculum and taking it off of the curriculum. So now it's up to the teacher whether or not they're, they're going to talk about that. But you were, what were you going to say? Well, I was actually just going to see if, if kind of Michael wanted to respond to that because we do see this all the time, right? In, in legislative environments, you know, poison pill amendments, getting people on the record to, you know, vote against inflammatory things are then spun into, well, you're against this and you're against that. So I guess kind of, Michael, what's your take? Because the added element we have here is that the chamber can't even debate this right now because Texas Democrats aren't even providing a quorum. So kind of talk to me about your take on, you know, how you see this playing out. Is this a legislative process writ large or is what we're seeing actually going to be the final result? Well, let me first say that this isn't the first time we've had this issue in the South. The Civil War was defined in textbooks as the war of Northern aggression. Like we've seen this playbook before. And so as Republicans continue to attack critical race theory as if elementary schools are teaching it rather than graduate schools and law schools, we run into this conundrum where both sides are trying to now use history and use education as this political cudgel when it shouldn't. At its most basic level, we need to have unified facts that we start from the beginning and raise children understanding so that we can have basic conversations. What we've done now is make everything political, even, you know, five, seven-year-olds trying to learn how the country was formed. Kelsey, what I'm curious about is what, what is it about kind of Texas's history or just kind of American history in general that, that, that makes conservatives blanch? I mean, if, if, if the true history is taught, are, are people, are conservatives afraid that people won't have faith in the mythology of, of the country anymore? Because I think you can believe both things at once, that the idea that the country was founded on is, is, is one uh, that, that, that should be supported and should serve as kind of a beacon you know, for, for people today, for people around the country, equality for all, you know, the, the, the words in the Declaration of Independence. The fact that we have often not lived up to that doesn't undermine that, uh, that I, idea. So wh what, is, what is it that, that makes people say, well, let, let's not talk about all of these issues I would, uh, I would, I guess, dispute the premise of that question because I'm not sure any of any Republican or conservative who is scared of teaching the truth of American history. In fact, that's what a lot of these bills are are trying to ensure that occurs in our classrooms. Uh, we know the 1619 project had major historical flaws. Uh, that is one piece I saw in this legislation. I believe that's actually banned, which shouldn't be uh, controversial when, again, that piece of uh, supposedly historical writing was, was found by many historians across the spe spectrum uh, to be inaccurate. Um, I don't, I, I also don't know, you know, as a, as a uh, 
someone who attended public school, uh, you know, I, I was taught true history. I was taught of Americans, Americans' laws, uh, and, and that's exactly what this type of legislation tries to preserve versus this critical race theory doctrine, which simply seeks to divide Americans and encourages students to look at uh, superficial characteristics such, such as, as skin color um, versus actually just examining our history, the truth about what happened, which we all support and encourage and of course want our children to experience in the public schools. So, to uh, Kelsey, Sorry, can I just jump in real quick? Sure. Just real quick. Critical race theory is taught in law schools and it's about the application of laws and how race has played a factor in that. Like it's not something that is widely taught and it's important because there's de jour racism and there's de facto racism and that's what it addresses. So this idea that critical race theory is this widely taught thing that the average person who has no understanding of history, like it's just fundamentally not true. Uh, so I do think uh, that, Kelsey, correct me if I'm wrong, I do think the nation's largest teachers union did talk about critical race theory in their recent meeting. So I do think that there is a little bit of an element of it, or at least a recognition that some teachers do want to teach in public schools. But to Kelsey's point about the bill itself, you mentioned the 1619 Project. I just wanted to read it from the bill. It does say you teachers will not be allowed to, quote, require an understanding of the 1619 Project, end quote. So that is in the bill itself. But Michael, I wanted to ask you about something you said earlier, you know, when you're saying, well, education shouldn't be politicized. That's something, obviously, I think everybody agrees with. But at the end of the day, you know, education is inherently political in the sense that you are making choices about what you're going to teach in the classroom. You don't have endless amounts of time to consider everything. So how do you think the best way to handle this is? You know, do you think these local school boards should be making these decisions, state, you know, state governments, or is it someone else? You know, I think there's got to be a combination of state and federal uh, organization and the way it's done. Because, you know, states like Mississippi and Alabama can't be allowed to just rewrite history and talk about slavery or talk about the murder of Native Americans while Massachusetts and New York teaches something entirely different. It's okay that we're sad and embarrassed about some of the sins of this country, but we can't ignore them or wipe them away just because we don't want to talk about them. You know, I, I also feel like the, uh, the curriculum doesn't do enough uh, work to try to uplift uh, stories of people other than, say, like Paul Revere. Like, everybody learns about Paul Revere and his, and his ride. People don't learn about oh, was it Robert Smalls, you know, who, who during the Civil War escaped slavery. We talked about him on this show before. Escaped slavery by stealing uh, a Confederate ship and, and with his family kind of piloting it out of the Charleston Harbor, uh, tricking a bunch of different Confederates and turning it over to the Union. And then he ends up becoming, uh, you know, he fights for the Union. He becomes a member of Congress from South Carolina. Like, there, there isn't any work done to, to kind of say that, you know, everybody, every kid should know who Robert Smalls is. Like, that's an absolutely incredible story. Uh, instead, everybody knows who Paul Revere is, and, it's, and it seems like we're going the wrong direction by saying, let's not study Susan B. Anthony and Cesar Chavez's writing anymore. Yeah, so I guess I'll put the final question to you, Kelsey, kind of similar question I gave to Michael. Who should be making these choices? Because at the end of the day, there's never enough time. There just isn't in reality to consider everything you want to you know, teach in the classroom. So what do you think is at, at root here? Is it you know, political people trying to say, make political choices in the classroom or you know, push some of this education, these education decisions to the local governments? What's your take? 
We need to mean local control of our education system. Uh, when what national union? Oh, she's talking nonsense. But again, critical race theory is not bad. I don't understand. Like you, you're in a country. You have the right to criticize it. Nobody can tell you that you can't criticize something that you are a part of, ever. You're in it. You're making history in this country at this time. In 200, 300 years, someone will write down it, look back and see what was done. And why aren't we willing to do that? We're stuck in the ways of, like I say, the rules of 1949 cannot cannot be used in 2021. Things change. Society changes. Anyway, this is the Common Sense Party Podcast. Uh, rate us, review us, uh, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcast. Make us the number one podcast in America. We can be reached on common sense party gmail uh ig and we're on twitter send us a line see if we're doing right uh the next story is the republicans the republicans blocked a conversation of the infrastructure bill but check this out senators have just voted to reject moving forward with the bipartisan infrastructure bill um it was a vote of 51 to 49 this was again a procedural vote that uh, senate leader chuck schumer had insisted be held today cbsn washington reporter caitlin huey burns is on capitol hill and joins us now hi caitlin so what happens now that this procedural vote has been rejected we did see senator schumer come up for a moment there and ask that the vote be reconsidered uh what was that about exactly Hi, Tanya, that's right. So if you heard Chuck Schumer there, he switched his vote to vote no. And you may ask, well, why would Schumer vote against this bill, considering that he wanted to bring it up in the first place? That's all a procedural tactic. The majority leader can switch the vote to no, and that would enable him to bring it back up again later. What's happened here on Capitol Hill today is you've had this bipartisan group of negotiators, Republicans and Democrats, working late into the night last night and early this morning to hash out a framework of legislation focused on a very narrow definition of traditional infrastructure. Uh, they say that they are making progress, but they have not yet made a firm deal and they do not yet have legislative text. So if you were listening to the vote, you saw all of the Republicans vote against moving forward here and all of the Democrats uh, uh, for moving ahead with this vote. And now Schumer, because he voted no, can bring this back up again later. And up here on Capitol Hill, you've had Republicans urging Schumer to uh, push this vote until Monday to allow them more time to come together with some kind of legislative framework that they can agree upon and then move forward to debating this bill. Because Republicans up here have been arguing all day that they can't vote to move forward on something that doesn't quite exist yet. So you may have heard people like uh, Mitt Romney and Rob Portman uh, vote against moving forward. And you may ask, well, aren't these the same law 
lawmakers who are part of this bipartisan uh, group working on legislation. Uh, that is true. They have been hammering out those details, but because they weren't able to reach an agreement by this hour and want more time, uh, they voted against proceeding. But they did uh, you know, urge for a vote next week and say that if they're able to come up with a framework, that they would be amenable to moving forward with debate here. So what is the timeline now at this point, now that Senator Schumer changed his vote to no so that he can bring it up again? Uh, has he said when? Will it be as soon as Monday, perhaps? Well, that's certainly what the lawmakers up here want to see, and whether he agrees to that remains to be seen. We're waiting to see uh, what kind of statement that he makes. We also know some of the Democrats, as part of this uh, bipartisan group, are going to release a statement any minute now uh, addressing this and perhaps talking about next steps. So what are the major sticking points? Why haven't they been able to reach a deal at this point? Well, the sticking points are really the same that we've been talking about for weeks. It's essentially how to actually pay for uh, this proposal. Um, so that's what they've been trying to iron out today in the details. And we'll see whether they are able to release something this week that at least shows some kind of forward momentum here. But that's the reason that Schumer wanted right. to have this vote in the first place. Um, he knew that it was going to fail. We all knew that it was going to fail. But it really uh, worked in terms of getting these negotiators to advance on something because they've been working on this for you know it's been a month since biden agreed you know biden essentially shook hands with uh with this group to say that they had reached a deal and we still haven't seen any sort of like tangible framework yet so this was all designed to kind of get everybody to the table get them to actually start moving here um, whether this pays off or whether it was a risky move you know remains to be seen um, and, and that's what we're going to be watching for in the next few minutes here, what Schumer decides to do next. And Caitlin, this doesn't indicate that the bipartisan infrastructure bill itself is in any peril, correct? There's still a lot of support on both sides of the aisle to get this through. I mean, I think we just want to be clear for viewers, this was simply a procedural vote. This is not, uh, you know, an indication that this infrastructure bill, this bipartisan infrastructure bill, um, is in great peril, correct? That's a really good point, Tanya, that there has been no legislative text, so it's not like they were voting on an actual piece of legislation. This was really to just open up the debate on the bill to really just get it going. Uh, Republicans have been saying up here all day that they want to get to some kind of, of, of agreement. And the reason why is because when you look at our CBS News polling, for example, some of the parameters when it comes to regular infrastructure, investments in roads and bridges, investments in broadband, they're wildly popular, widely popular, have a lot of bipartisan support. So there is political incentive for Republicans to get on board with traditional infrastructure investments. And you've heard people like Rob Portman say that, look, as we're talking about the you know, rising inflation, as we're talking about increased prices, investments in infrastructure can can help uh, spur the economy in the longer term. So there is that incentive, uh, but again, the devil is always in the details. So while we've been hearing for the past 24 hours that they're close to an agreement, everybody seems to be working towards some kind of solution here in terms of the bipartisan framework, we still haven't seen the details yet. So there still could be a chance that they aren't able to get to something, uh, but they've been trying to sound positive notes all day here. Any news of what came out of that 11th hour lunch meeting uh, between some of those bipartisan senators? Do we know if there was any progress made there? 
Well, we know that some of the Democrats coming out of that meeting said that they would be releasing a statement after today's vote. So it seemed like they knew they weren't going to get to any sort of, of real tangible agreement by the end of that uh, luncheon and were, of course, by this vote today. Um, but they have been asking for a little more time. So we're awaiting that statement uh, to see kind of what the next steps are and what exactly they can agree to. Again, the main focal point is how to pay for this program. There had been some talk on the table uh, a couple of days ago uh, involving um, greater enforcement of, of the IR, from the IRS in terms of tax enforcement uh, that has been taken off the table that was designed to, to raise some revenue. But the issue of, of taxes is kind of really critical here for both sides, uh, not wanting to, you know, Republicans not wanting to do much to reform the tax code in any way, Democrats not wanting to do anything that would raise taxes on those who they say they wouldn't raise taxes on. Uh, so that is kind of the big question about how to actually pay for for this program, uh, and that's what these uh, lawmakers are trying to iron out over time. But they need, you know, Congress needs a deadline to do anything, and so that's really why uh, Schumer was bringing this up here. Um, they're a lot like journalists in a way. We need we need some kind of, of deadline to get us uh, in into some kind of movement. But we'll see whether this was a good bet by Schumer or uh, or a risky one. Oh man, Denver, uh, the Republicans are slow. Slow playing this bullshit. If y'all didn't know, all they doing is trying to stall out the clock till the until midterms, trying to gum up the works. Yeah, don't want to raise taxes. Um, no, they don't want raise taxes on their donors. That's what they want to do. The Democrats propose to increase the corporate tax and also go after the people who cheat on their taxes. Uh, funding the IRS hey I'm always say if at the end if we have to pay a little more to get what we want what is the problem what is the problem I don't understand this uh, all right and next uh, we gotta hear what Lindsey Graham said on Fox News check us out if for some reason they pass reconciliation uh, budget resolution to bring that bill to the floor of the United States Senate, the $3.5 trillion bill, you gotta have a quorum to pass a bill in the Senate. I would leave before I'd let that happen. So to my Republican colleagues, we may learn something from our Democratic friends in Texas when it comes to avoiding a $3.5 trillion tax and spend package. All right, uh, for those who don't know, there's two bills going on at the same time, a bipartisanship bipartisan bill which Democrats and Republicans uh, uh, moder uh, the moderate Democrats are conservative Democrats are really Republicans and then a full Democratic bill of course the bipartisan one is lower and the go to loan Democratic bill includes a lot of stuff so what he's saying is that he will leave but uh, this is from the Brian Taylor Cohen uh, clip check it out some more leave town wow so so you just see them leave and you're saying fine they they were effective in not giving the republicans a quorum you'll do the same thing on a three hey, and a half trillion dollar uh, hey, tax and spend hey vice president harris if you think these people are heroes well then i expect you to show up and pat us on the back hell yeah i would leave i'm not i will use everything lawfully in my toolbox 
to prevent rampant inflation. A three and a half trillion dollar infrastructure package that's got nothing to do with infrastructure, that is a tax and spend dream of the of the socialist left. If it takes me not yeah. showing up to stop that, I will do it. Because if we pass that bill, you're gonna have inflation through the roof. And if they put legalizing illegal immigrants in that bill, you're gonna have a complete run on the border. It will be throwing jet fuel on a fire called illegal immigration. It would lead to an invasion of illegal immigrants if we put uh, amnesty in the $3.5 trillion bill. So I'd do anything I could to stop that. Imagine if Lindsey Graham bothered to know what he was talking about before he started talking. This is the South Carolina Republican equating Texas Democrats breaking quorum to protect voting rights with Republicans' desire to pull a stunt to stop a wildly popular infrastructure bill from passing. And nowhere is his ignorance more obvious than his suggestion that Republicans take a page out of the Texas Democrats book and break quorum to kill the infrastructure bill. And he says, you gotta have a quorum to pass a bill in the Senate. But here's the thing, the quorum needed in the Senate is a simple majority, and a quorum is implied in the Senate unless someone explicitly requests a roll call. But obviously, the only person who would request a roll call is a Republican, and if a Republican is there, that would mean there are 50 Democrats plus one Republican, which means, you guessed it, 51 senators, which is enough for a quorum. So either only Democrats show up and the quorum is implied since no one called the roll, or a Republican shows up to demand a roll call and there's a quorum anyway. Either way, it's a win-win. So yeah, great idea, Lindsey. Someone put that guy in charge. Now, Lindsey Graham's brilliant maneuvering aside, what's worse is the false equivalency between the Texas Democrats leaving the state to block a blatant voter suppression bill meant to prevent millions of Texans from voting and Republicans potentially leaving to block a desperately needed infrastructure package from passing that would deliver once-in-a-generation updates to our crumbling infrastructure and mitigate the worst effects of climate change and bolster child and elder care meant to free up caretakers to participate in the economy and so much more. It really is telling that a Republican wants to respond to a bill that would help millions of Americans in the same way that Democrats respond to a bill that would suppress voting rights for millions of regular Americans. Graham even invokes inflation. Why? Because that's one of the buzzwords that Republicans have seized upon to scare people into not supporting a bill that overwhelmingly helps the vast majority of Americans. In reality, let's talk about inflation. Let's think for a second why inflation might be just a bit higher now than a year ago. Might it be, and bear with me here, that companies that were making zero dollars because a global pandemic shut down business are compensating with higher prices now that the economy is open again? Might that have something to do with it? Consider too, we already know what the primary drivers of high prices are. For example, a third of inflation was due to soaring used car prices, which rose nearly 30% in the past year, given the heavy demand since people didn't want to take public transportation. Coupled with the low supply because rental companies purchased fewer cars in 2020, meaning that fewer cars were sold on the used car market. There are similar situations with furniture, bikes, and gas, all part of an economy adjusting to a post-pandemic world. A world in which suppliers will ultimately adjust and meet the demand, and then prices will normalize, but not before Republicans can run around like chickens with their heads cut off, fear-mongering that the sky is falling. If you need further proof that this represents transitory factors, just look at the rest of the world, where inflation is also picking up among much of the developed countries. And granted, while the U.S.'s inflation rate is a bit higher than our developed peers, our economies also bounce back faster than our developed peers. Why? Because once Joe Biden took office, we had one of the fastest vaccine rollouts. That meant life could go back to normal faster than it did in Europe, Japan, and other parts of the world. 
And look, none of this is to say that we shouldn't keep an eye on inflation, but let's not pretend that it's a choice here between allowing our infrastructure to continue crumbling and stopping inflation, because it's a choice, and Republicans know that. And All right, yep. Ask Lindy Graham showing how smart he is. Again. Since when investing in America is a bad thing? Yeah, please let me know since then it's a bad thing to invest in America. All right, uh, moving on to our next story. Uh, one of those um, rep, uh, conservative Democrats, uh, Cinema. Uh, her actions may backfire on her during this term. Uh, the rise and takes a look at her, at her, I guess, Senate tenure. Check this out. Daniel Marins joins us to discuss prescription drug pricing, and Blake Masters discusses his run for Senate in Arizona. A new poll from progressive think tank Data for Progress asked Arizona Democratic primary voters whether or not they'd support a challenger to Senator Kirsten Sinema if she kept on stymieing efforts for filibuster reform in the Senate. The survey found voters overwhelmingly support this idea. 66% said they would support a candidate who was for filibuster reform, while 22% said they would continue to, port, to support cinema, just 22%. 13% said they were unsure. Cinema, of course, has been one of the moderate Democrats, along with West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who's remained a defender of the filibuster, saying it promotes bipartisanship. Well, as folks in Arizona know, I've long been a supporter of the filibuster because it is a tool that protects the democracy of our nation. Rather than allowing our country to ricochet wildly every two to four years back and forth between policies, the idea of the filibuster was created by those who came before us in the United States Senate to create comedy and to encourage senators to find bipartisanship and work together. So filibuster reform might seem like, a, seem like a wonky Washington thing, but it actually has tons of relevance for the negotiations that are ongoing right now and will affect all of our lives via the infrastructure reform bills. Now, as a more perfect union notes, Cinema herself hasn't actually always been for the Senate filibuster. So what does that mean? Well, in the Senate, we no longer have 60 votes. Some would argue we never had 60 because one of those was Joseph Lieberman. But that's whatever. Um, yeah, and Nelson too, but really um, So, so now there's, um, I think, as the president so eloquently said on Wednesday, there's none of this pressure, this false pressure to get to 60. So what that means is that um, the Democrats um, can stop uh, kowtowing to Joe Lieberman and instead seek other avenues to move forward with health reform. And so it's likely that the Senate will move forward with a process called reconciliation, which takes only 51 votes. And by the way, it's not unusual. You may recall that before the Democrats took the Senate in 2008, that the Republicans controlled the Senate for quite some time. In fact, since around 1994, they never had 60 votes, and they managed to do a lot of really bad things during that time. So the reconciliation process is still quite available, and we will use it for good rather than for evil. Um, so. Just music to Ryan Grimm's ears. Yeah. I love the way she said, by the way, Joe Lieberman with the head flip, it accentuated the point so well. I miss that old Kirsten Cinema. She, for people who don't know, she started out as kind of a, a radical anti-globalization yes. uh, protester, was a, a Green Party activist for a while, 
and then began a pretty rapid swing to the right. And this, this captured her kind of in her progressive Democrat phase uh -huh. before she became a kind of mainstream Democrat and now a, a right-wing Democrat. Who now she was running for Senate in a purple state, by the way. That's right, but it's right. And Mark Kelly, though, is an, another senator from a purple state and has high approval ratings among Democrats and has can, you know, consistently voted with yeah. the D Democratic Party. Cinema uh, just keeps veering further and further uh, to, to the right. And I, th I think that she'll look at these poll numbers broadly and like them, mm -hmm. uh, even though she's doing so terribly among, among Democrats. Uh, the more pain the more public pain she seems to be experiencing from Democrats, the higher her numbers go with Republicans. Mm -hmm. But I think she's deluding herself, because she'll, she'll tell herself, well, once the election comes, the Democrats will come back to me. That may be true. Mm -hmm. I think, like, in a general election between a Democrat and a Republican in Arizona, 90-plus you know, percent of the Democrats will come back to her. But why does she think the Republicans will behave any differently? Right. In that general election, those Republicans might be like, you know what, I like Kirsten Cinema. Like, I'm glad that she bucked the Democrats. But you know what, I'd rather have a Republican. Mm -hmm. it's, it's actually, it touches on something that is happening in the Senate. Um, interestingly, I think, and kind of happens under the radar, is a lot of people are rethinking the filibuster right now. And I don't know if this is a sincere shift on Kirsten Cinema's behalf. It does seem as though some of her moderation actually has been sort of ideological and like her transitioning out of her youthful politics. I don't know how much of it actually has been sincere because, as I was just saying, it really correlated with her uh, decision to wade into national politics. So that tells you something pretty immediately. But a lot of people have rethought their position on filibuster. Buster reform. I remember actually talking to Ted Cruz about this in an interview once, and how like the, but he was in the opposite direction at the time, um, and so it's it's interesting what to was see his take? that Democrats are going to get rid of it anyway. So at so some they point, might as well get rid of it. yeah, you might as well just get rid of it. And Kirsten Sinema is coming from the opposite position here, which is that it's it's sort of necessary to preserve despite the pro the political pressures. I think when people get in the Senate and see sort of the nitty gritty of the legislative process, they come away with different opinions on the filibuster, and in those cases, two divergent opinions, right. which is interesting to watch. Um, and and Kirsten Sinema again has so much power right now with the filibuster. She really Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin are the two most. Powerful members of the Senate. They, well, she has power over whether or not they eliminate the filibuster. But ironically, the existence of the filibuster deprives her own power and makes bipartisanship harder. She has been consistently making this claim that the filibuster supports bipartisanship. It encourages bipartisanship. It brings the parties together. That's untrue. It actually pushes the parties apart because in order to get 60 votes, Either the Republicans last time around needed 10 Democrats, or the Democrats this time need 10 Republicans. 10 in our polarized environment is a bridge too far. Mm -hmm. You can get four or five. Republicans in the past, when they did uh, the tax cut through reconciliation, negotiated very closely with Manchin, and he was prepared to vote for it if a few little tweaks of his could have gotten in. They didn't end up needing him, and so they didn't, they didn't take him. But that would have made it bipartisan. He was willing to play ball because it only needed 50 votes to get through under reconciliation rather than needing 60. And so when Democrats pursue things that require 60 votes, uh, they, they almost never get more than a couple of Republicans uh, to, to go along with them. 
if you bring the threshold down to just 50, now Susan Collins, Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, they know that this train is leaving the station. And if they want a, a seat on it, they, they got to get on board. If they want some a piece of some measure to get into it, they, they need to play ball. I think that's a credible hypothetical, especially with some of these omnibus bills. I also, though, think that without the filibuster, um, you would see the incentives to work together on some different measures. Like, I'm not sure that we would see all this omnibus legislation. I think we would see probably more stuff parceled out and then just kind of uh, bulldoze through. At the same time, however, um, Republicans have said that if the filibuster goes away, they're just going to slow down the legislative process more and more and more via other mechanisms. And so it's actually, I think that there's, it's too, there's a reductive kind of position and a, an overly simplified position on what the Senate would look like without the filibuster just Although in general. the minority always says they're going to do that. Democrats said they would do that if, uh, they, if McConnell got rid of the Supreme Court. The judicial filibuster. filibuster. Yeah. Uh, they didn't do it. Republicans said they would do it if Harry Reid got rid of the lower level judicial filibuster. He got rid of it. They didn't do it. They always say they're going to do this. But then, but doing it is such a pain that they, that, they, that they give up on it. No, it really is. So during a CNN town hall on Wednesday, Biden, who had previously expressed openness to filibuster reform, shot down any notion that he was for it. Let's roll that clip. If you, you agree with the former president, he is called, you're, you're, as you call him, your old boss, that it is a relic of Jim Crow. It is. If it's a relic of Jim Crow, it's been used to fight against civil rights legislation historically. Why protect it? There's no reason to protect it other than you're going to throw the entire Congress into chaos and nothing will get done. Right. Nothing at all will get done. It's interesting because he, his prior comments on the filibuster really alarmed uh, Republicans and I think moderates in the Senate in both parties. And it, it's treated as, as this sacred relic that's been passed down from the founders when it's anything but. Yeah, it really is anything but. Um, and that's what gets to like the way that this has been reduced. It's just been reduced to some like really silly conversation. And Joe Biden himself, I think your, your point there is well taken. Does he remember saying that? Because when Don Lemon asked, he didn't address it. And his actual uh, defense there, as you point out, is the same thing that was happening in the 90s. He reverted um, from one place to that sort of tired um, democratic argument that, I mean, I, I probably tend to agree with. I don't think it's an apocalypse if the filibuster goes away. But I really do wonder if, if Joe Biden had been pushed at a certain point to start questioning filibuster reform publicly by advisors who were, who were chirping in his ear and saying, you know, you gotta, we, we got to throw a bone over here. Well, the irony here, I think, is that if his opinion has changed, it's changed because he's getting momentum around the reconciliation infrastructure Great package. Point. Which is like, wait a minute, buddy. Great point. <laughs> so, so because you're making progress with this 50-vote threshold yes. infrastructure package, you don't want to mess that up by talking about filibuster reform. I get that. But let's not pretend that nothing can happen with a 50-vote threshold when the reconciliation process is the is happening and yeah. is the thing that is causing you to back off of uh, filibuster reform. And if your eyes are glazing over because we're talking about filibuster reform and reconciliation, I, we did land on this point earlier in the week that it's actually entirely possible that the way they're using reconciliation to pass through what could be this massive um, nation-changing omnibus legislation that hits a lot of Democratic priority agenda items um, might be what finally pushes Democrats away from filibuster reform into just keeping it same old. But the implications of this, while I don't think would be apocalyptic, would be really huge for legislation moving through Congress 
and um, getting into you know actually your everyday lives like right. it, it changes people's everyday lives if Congress starts um, passing all of this legislation and hopefully a lot of it would be for the better I'm not sure that it would it would also be great for right but it's a democracy like to that, that to me that's the idea the voters candidates run on stuff the uh, voters vote they they put politicians in power the politicians then enact that agenda and then voters decide whether they like it this idea that that the public needs to be protected from their own choices is is completely uh, anti-democratic mm. yep anti-democratic that is correct yep like they said mansion and cinema are the most powerful people in the senate now because it's a 50 50 split and my number one rule is people with power will not give up power willingly so do you think they're going to change to filibuster because they to lose that power hell the fuck not they're not going to do that but like i said we got to get them out i hope they 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 get them out because they are not they are not um for the people at all uh moving on to our next story uh fox news is pushing the vaccine uh, why is that legal problems or most of their people are getting sick uh, here's a clip from the Young Turks check this out let's watch that's the worry is all the people who have not gotten vaccinated and there's some people who have a reason they can't get vaccinated i've got a friend who when she gets the flu shot is paralyzed for a week or two that kind of person does not get it people who are pregnant are reluctant to get it before the baby comes and so there are people but everybody else if you have the chance get the shot so Ducey is saying, get the shot. I have my own speculation as to why uh, he has such a strong message about this so late in the game. But uh, the audience did not take this well. We'll get to them in just a second. But Brian Kilme jumped in to regulate. Remember, you're on Fox News, Ducey. You better follow along. Let's watch. But listen, if you didn't get a vaccination, that's your choice. And if you did, like I did, and and they did, and maybe you did, then you should not wear a mask. And if you didn't, if you want to go cliff diving this weekend, you don't have to check with me. It seems a little dangerous, but I'm not going to judge you. And if you go ahead and put yourself in danger, if you feel as though this is not something for you, don't do it. But don't affect my life. Right? 99% of the people who are dying from COVID are unvaccinated. That's so their choice. They, they don't want to die. Uh, so they are, uh, the administration and the government is saying we need the mask mandate to protect the unvaccinated. That, that well, is not, uh, that's not their job. It's not their job to protect anybody. Well, they're it's not the government's job to protect anybody. So why are we spending so much money on the Defense Department <laughs> under the guise of protecting national security? Anyway, obviously, Kill Me just isn't consistent on anything. Um, but I wanted to get your thoughts, Waz, on... Yep, it's not the government's job to protect the people. Again, high school education, not understanding. This is the Common Sense Party Podcast. Rate us, review us on Google, on Spotify. Reach us on Facebook, IG. You can send us an email, see how we're doing at the Common Sense Party Podcast at gmail.com. And we're going to 
go again to MSNBC talking about why the Republicans are flopping. Good evening from New York. I'm Chris Hayes. Um, you've noticed what we've noticed, right? In the last few days, it seems as though someone somewhere hit a button. All of a sudden, we are seeing conservatives, Republicans coming out to finally state the obvious. COVID vaccines are saving lives, they are safe and effective, and they are a great way of protecting you, your family, and your loved ones from the scourge of COVID, an infectious respiratory virus which has already killed more than 600,000 Americans, and at various points brought our hospitals and our broader society to its knees. Please take COVID seriously. I can't say it enough. Enough people have died. We don't need any more deaths. America, we're in this together. And if you can, get the vaccine. For information on vaccine sites, visit the vaccine finder on the homepage of foxnews.com. You do see uh, about 95 to 98% of people in the hospital for COVID are people that aren't vaccinated. And, and I just, you know, I wanted, I was ready to get the vaccine. I've always felt it was safe and effective. These shots need to get in everybody's arm as rapidly as possible. But we're going to be back in a situation in the fall that we don't yearn for that we went through last year. If you are vaccinated, fully vaccinated, the chance of you getting seriously ill or dying from COVID is effectively zero. All of this is great and very welcome, but it is striking to see. I mean, starting to see someone like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis getting up and saying, hey, guys, the vaccines will save your lives. It is bizarre because seeing it makes you realize just how completely absent Republicans have been for all this time. We, of course, have covered the anti-vax or anti-pro-vax just asking questions, uh, juvenile trolling from Fox News, and the irresponsible, wildly insidious way they have covered the pandemic. But it is strange how much mainstream Republicans, the big mouthpieces for conservatism, have been essentially absent on the whole question altogether. I think that is because, from the beginning, huge parts of the Republican Party have seen the pandemic as fundamentally a political problem rather than a once-in-a-lifetime health crisis. Now, the person that set the tone for that was, of course, Donald Trump, and it flowed down. Because the most important thing to Donald Trump, who was the leader of the Republican Party and was president when the pandemic hit, was what the pandemic was doing to the stock market and therefore his re-election campaign. On Monday, March 9th, 2020, with the stock market expected to fall precipitously, remember, rather than do something that would actually improve the situation, Trump tried to bluff his way through, tweeting, quote, the fake news media and their partner, the Democrat Party, is doing everything within its semi-considerable power, used to be greater, to inflame the coronavirus situation far beyond what the facts would warrant. Surgeon General, the risk is low to the average American. The Dow fell 8% that day. Three days later on Thursday, it fell 10% for what was the worst day since the 1987 crash. And so on Friday, to rally the market, Trump paraded a bunch of CEOs around the Rose Garden in the afternoon, made a bunch of empty promises that Google has 1,700 engineers working on a website to facilitate COVID testing. They did not have 1,700 engineers working on that. And then when the Dow finished higher that day, after a terrible week, Trump signed the stock chart and gave it to his loyal supporter, Lou Dobbs of Fox Business. That did nothing to stop COVID from spreading, right? Trump never actually cared about stopping COVID from spreading, about stopping people from getting sick. 
But just the week before that, he had openly admitted he did not want to let Americans infected with COVID off a cruise ship because, quote, I'd rather have them stay on. I don't need the numbers to double. Now, Trump is a special case, okay? He is a sociopath who I believe actually lacks the ability to actually appreciate human suffering and loss at a very deep level. Just actually can't do it. And because he treated the disease like a public relations issue, that did set the tone for the rest of the party. It wasn't just Trump. Here's a great example. Texas Senator Ted Cruz echoing the exact same cynicism exactly one year ago today. If it ends up that Biden wins in November, I hope he doesn't. I don't think he will. But if he does, I guarantee you the week after the election, suddenly all those Democratic governors, all those Democratic mayors will say, everything's magically better. Go back to work. Go back to school. Suddenly the problems are solved. You won't even have to wait for Biden to be sworn in. All they'll need is election day and suddenly their willingness to just destroy people's lives and livelihoods, they will have accomplished their task. That's wrong, it's cynical, and, 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 and we shouldn't be a part of it. Okay, utterly, completely, in every possible conceivable way wrong. Just, just astoundingly, beautifully wrong, right? <laughs> it was Republicans that rushed to open up sooner, even after Biden was elected. Democratic states, even the schools, right? More reticent, just completely wrong. Ted Cruz, absolutely wrong. It's not how things shook out, but it's so revealing. Why did he make that mistake? Because Ted Cruz himself only views the pandemic through a political prism. And so he projects it onto everyone else. He thinks Democrats do too. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis consistently downplayed the health threats throughout this crisis. And he was applauded by Republicans for winning the, uh, the, the pandemic. Just last week, he started selling a bunch of anti-COVID uh, expertise merchandise, including lockdown koozies with a quote by him saying, how the hell am I going to be able to drink a beer with a mask on? And t-shirts that read, don't Fauci my Florida. That's all about political positioning. It was always about political positioning. And to be fair, there's been a lot of political posturing around the pandemic from Democrats and liberals as well. There has been. But the deep problem here is that there's always been this sense among Republicans and Republican politicians, not all of them, but the vast majority, that COVID is essentially an invented threat. The libs are more or less making this up. You just need to, you know, manage it and, and move along and not freak out. Now, I do think there's a complex relationship between who's leading the pushback to, say, COVID measures, particularly vaccines, and who's following. But because of most of that, you know, if you gave most Republican politicians truth serum, I think they would tell you that once the vaccines were available, the goal for Republicans was essentially to have their cake and eat it too. Meaning, let the Biden administration, which I think Republicans secretly know is certainly far more competent than the Trump administration, generally wants to solve the problem, let the Biden administration handle the crisis. Let them administer the vaccine across the country, but don't lift a finger to aid them. Take your pot shots where you can, maybe also flirt with anti-pro-vax rhetoric like Tucker Carlson. And that way, you can have your cake and eat it too, right? You get your state vaccinated, you open up businesses, not you know, submerge your hospitals, while also wiping your hands of the whole thing and maintaining a good standing with the base that is radicalized against public health measures in general, okay? Now we saw this, states from Tennessee to Missouri to even Florida, Ron DeSantis issued an executive order about COVID mandates, right? Now, the perfect example of the inherent contradictions of this are the Republicans who refuse to say if they are vaccinated. 
Tucker Carlson, for example, is using the same line to multiple reporters, um, comparing sharing his vaccination status to sharing his favorite sex positions. He's used that line uh, multiple times. It's the kind of line that like would maybe be clever from a 12-year-old. Um, he's very proud of it. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene claimed that asking her status uh, at a press conference the other day is a HIPAA violation. It's not. Uh, and wouldn't you expect her to be the first person to just tell you she's not vaccinated and be proud about it? But for some reason, she didn't want to answer. Neither did Tucker Carlson. I wonder what their vaccination status is. Today, Congressman Ronnie Jackson asked why Democrats don't get asked if they have been vaccinated. And the answer is because they have been and they told everyone because they want other people to get vaccinated. In fact, a bunch of reporters called up every member of Congress and every Democratic member of Congress said, yeah, I got vaccinated. You should, too, because they want people to not get killed from COVID. And I think what's happened here, as I try to make sense of what we're seeing the last few days, I do think that with all the propaganda and all the political posturing, a lot of Republicans convince themselves it really is not that big a deal, that they could just get away with a hands-off approach. But guess what? We keep relearning the same lesson over and over again, don't we, folks? Doesn't go anywhere. It's the same thing. It's out there. We may be done with COVID. COVID's not done with us. We've got a variant that is 60% more transmissible than the original virus, huge pools of unvaccinated people, and nearly all restrictions that were helping to keep the virus in check, right, on venues and businesses and social events, nightclubs, concerts, are gone. So what do you think all three of those things add up to? Well, you get an outbreak precisely like Dr. Peter Hotez said would happen. Remember, at this time last year, we were looking pretty good, and then we had that enormous acceleration after the July 4th holiday, July, August, September was terrible in this part of the country. And we have to assume that Mother Nature is telling us that that same thing's going to happen again. So I'm really holding my breath uh, in, about the South is what happens over this summer. Now, Dr. Hotez is not a politician. Uh, just because he's an expert doesn't mean he's infallible, certainly, but he doesn't have a dog in the fight from a political standpoint. I mean, that, that's his best assessment. And here's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on Fox News with Laura Ingram laughing at him, talking about how liberals are just addicted to scaremongering. And here's where Florida cases are now. This is what the graph looks like. Look at that spike at the end. So thank you, Governor DeSantis, for telling people to get vaccinated. But we really could have used this much sooner. I'm glad you're doing it. Let's keep it up. Maybe instead of selling T-shirts and koozies, we can talk about how the vaccine has saved people's lives. And this is not about people with a certain political persuasion getting the virus or, or, or dying of it. I don't care. No one cares, really, I think. It, it's really not about politics. Everything is about politics at some level, but this shouldn't be, or it shouldn't be about politics in the way it has become. I hope this is a final moment to change that model of thinking among everyone alike, that this is fundamentally a political problem to solve, particularly the Republican Party that views it that way. Let's get everyone vaccinated, let's save as many lives as possible, and then we could just fight about all the other stuff later, okay? Yeah, they're changing the tune, but let's get vaccinated. Let's make this a hot girl, a hot boy summer whatever you want to call it because uh, COVID is back on the rise and everybody's trying to get out nobody wants to go back in get the vaccine 
Uh, this is a Common Sense Party Podcast. Uh, rate us, review us on Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcast. You can reach us at Instagram or Gmail. Uh, the next one is uh, the press secretary giving it to Fox News. Check this out. Vice presidential staffers reportedly feel like they work in a, quote, abusive environment. Well, I would first note that I try not to speak to or engage uh, on uh, anonymous reports or anonymous sources. I will say that uh, the vice president is an incredibly important partner to the president of the United States. She has a challenging job, a hard job, uh, and she has a great supportive team of people around her. Uh, but other than that, I'm not going to have any more comments on those reports. Okay. I'm hoping to clarify the administration's position here on defunding the police. You say the president does not want to defund the police. Uh, is the president concerned that, that last year the now associate attorney general, Benita Gupta, said it was, quote, critical for state and local leaders to heed calls from Black Lives Matter and movement for Black Lives activists to decrease police budgets? Well, let me first say that as a Fox News report uh, that came about in February quoted, uh, quote, Current and former police chiefs in more than 53 cities across the country, as well as the National Fraternal Order of Police, are issuing their support of the nomination of Benita Gupta, President Biden's nominee for Associate Attorney General, praising her leadership and record and urging the Senate Judiciary Committee to quickly confirm her to the post. I don't know that that was your report or not, but it was certainly one from your network. But she said, okay, so that's the Fox report. Thank yeah. you. Uh, and Senate testimony, she said she wanted to decrease police budgets. So she also she, made explicitly clear in her confirmation process that she opposes defunding the police. Uh, and the president ran on, most importantly, did not run on defunding the police. He's always opposed defunding the police. I'll also note, because you've asked this question before, or a few times over the last several days, that when we talk about uh, individuals uh, in Congress and their support for funding or uh, opposition to funding for the police, I think what the American people are most focused on is how people vote, what their record is, which is a public record. And I will note that while the president ran on and won the most votes of any candidate in history in a platform of boosting funding for law enforcement after Republicans spent decades trying to cut the COPS program, which again is public record, we don't need to uh, under, under, uh, undervalue the, the intelligence of the American people. Uh, the president ran on increasing that funding. It's in his budget. It was, in President Trump's budget, he significantly cut that. So that's a change. And the American Rescue Plan had a great deal of funding for local and state authorities, something that can support funding for local police and communities across the country, something many have used. It doesn't require me telling you names of individuals who opposed the American Rescue Plan. Every Republican opposed the American Rescue Plan, and I don't have time to read out all their names today. If you didn't know, that's what you call got them. No Republican. And they're talking about defund the police. Again, defund the police is not taking less police. It's retraining the police. Because they have military, they have huge budgets. Five to three billion dollars annually to support the police. But they're still not doing a good job. And those budgets are paid by taxpayers. Who do you think they pay for? All right, since they were talking about defund the police, let's get a clear definition of defunding the police. This is the chant the world now knows, but this is the one that is growing. Defund! Police! Defund! Police! When I say defund, you say police! 
demand the Black Lives Matter movement is to defund the police? Defunding the police is a campaign which identifies the fact that you've given the police more and more powers and resources, but we haven't seen any significant reduction in crime or any improvements in public safety. In fact, they often bring more violence to vulnerable and marginalised communities. For many, this is an extreme slogan, but to these protesters, it captures just what needs to change. So what does it mean? Where does it come from? And here in the UK, what exactly would be the impact of defunding the police? To understand the campaign to defund, you need to look at the US, the country with the highest incarceration rate in the world. Over the past four decades, America has almost tripled the amount it spends on policing, from $42 billion in 1977 to almost $115 billion 40 years later in 2017. Meanwhile, as police costs have skyrocketed, so has the number of people being incarcerated. And it's true. The amount of violent crime has fallen dramatically after reaching a peak in the early 90s. But some say that police budgets have just gone out of control. In New York, where Eric Garner was killed by police officers in 2014, the city spends $5.7 billion on policing every year. And that's out of the city's total budget of around $90 billion. That's more than the city spends on children's services, mental health, homeless services and sanitation. So now those calling for the police to be defunded say that money should be put into these areas instead to stop the causes of crime in the first place rather than spending the money on an increasingly militarized force with state-of-the-art kits. We've fallen into this system where there's like, uh, we have one tool for fixing everything, the police, and so everything looks like a policeable solution. But the, the alternatives to policing are actually very diverse. So really, this, this requires a, a, a kind of new level of imagination, creativity, and evidence-based research to help us identify what these alternatives would look like concretely. We're getting tough on drugs, and we mean business. Some argue that it was America's war on drugs that transformed the US into a penal society. Since 1980, the prison population has grown from around 300,000 to over 2.3 million today. Now, the incarceration rate has declined a bit in the last decade, but the numbers are still incredibly high. Out of every 100,000 people in America, 716 of them are behind bars, and one in five of these were for drug offenses. What's really telling about all of this is the racial makeup of the prison population. White Americans account for 64% of America, but just 39% of prisoners. Meanwhile, African Americans make up 13% of the country overall, but they make up a staggering 40% of the prison population. These problems, of course, go back centuries in the States. But what's new this time is social media. Videos of police killings can now go around the world in seconds. And as more people become enraged and engaged by these videos, many Americans are asking why they are paying billions of dollars in taxes to fund police forces who kill civilians and help to perpetuate age-old American inequalities and racial hierarchies. Defunding the police has now become the call of Black Lives Matter. It can be heard across America from Minneapolis to Miami, but the same message has also spread to the UK. And now activists are calling to defund the police force here as well. 
But can the same argument really be made? After all, things like police shootings are not nearly as common right here in the UK. Policing here is made up of dozens of different forces, the largest being the Metropolitan Police in London, with a budget of about £2.5 billion. Across England and Wales, the total spend is about £14 billion. Now, that's actually quite low when you compare it to the government's entire budget. Take the NHS, for example. That gets far more funding, around £153 billion every single year. But police numbers have become an increasingly political issue. In contrast to America, police officers have found themselves a casualty of austerity. With tighter budgets since the economic crash, this graph shows how the number of officers on the streets has gone down, not up. In fact, England and Wales have lost around 20,000 police officers in the last 10 years. During this time, many left-wing and liberal politicians have been saying this can't carry on and we need to increase the amount of police funding. Even Jeremy Corbyn, the most left-wing leader in the Labour Party's history, made this promise. We will recruit another 10,000 new police officers, including more armed police, who need to be properly rewarded, as well as a 1,000 more security service staff to support our communities and help keep us safe. His successor has taken a similar stance too. He joined the Black Lives Matter protest by taking the knee, but then appeared to distance himself from the campaign to defund the British police. So I asked him why that was. Sir Keir, is it time to defund the police? I do not think that the police in the UK should be defunded. I think they should be better funded. Uh, they should have more funding. I think at the same time, there should be more funding for uh, other areas mental health, education, housing um, would be obvious examples in my book. Perhaps the Labour Party is faced with a bit of a political dilemma here. The voter group most loyal to his party are black voters, and it's they who've had a hostile relationship with the police. But lots of other voters have traditionally always been in favour of having a stronger police force. So politicians like Sir Keir Starmer might find this issue a bit of a balancing act. Part of a disconnect between people's opinions on this is probably linked to their own personal experiences with the police. Reports say that in some parts of the country, black people are up to 40 times more likely to be stopped by the police than white people. In London, official stats show that not only are black people more likely to be stopped by the police, it's also more likely that these searches are completely unjustified, in the sense that the police don't actually find anything incriminating when they search you. And the problems don't even end there. For instance, Black children in England and Wales make up 16% of child arrests, despite being less than 4% of the population. And they were more than four times more likely than white children to be arrested. And prisons too. Despite making up just 14% of the overall population, black and brown men and women make up a quarter of the present population. And that figure rises to 40% when you look at young people in custody. Your sympathy for defunding the police would almost certainly rest on your relationship with them. For most of the country, who are unlikely to be disproportionately stopped by the police or arrested, there is significant support for more bobbies on the beat. Even with communities with a more adversarial relationship with the police, support for defunding them is far from universal. But the idea of defunding the police is not just about tackling racism, although that's obviously a big part of it, but it's also creating a system that helps and supports everyone in a better way, because increasingly, the police are getting involved in complicated social issues and mental health issues too, which might be better dealt with by other people. While many support services have had their funding cut, it's often been the police who have stepped in, sometimes not as well trained at dealing with sensitive personal situations. 
For instance, these figures show the number of police incidents that were flagged as being related to mental health, rising to nearly half a million in 2018 alone. So, many people calling to defund the police are actually calling for radical reforms to address the balance, rather than mass defunding or abolition as others have demanded. Defunding the police isn't about getting rid of the police tomorrow and closing every prison the next day. No one is arguing for that. And we understand we don't have the kind of social or economic environment that makes that viable. What it does argue for is that we can reduce levels of harm and violence within our society if we improve levels of social housing available to people, if we make more secure and better paid jobs, if we make education and training more accessible to lower income people, if we improve social care and health care and mental health provision, if we refund our youth services to make sure the most vulnerable young people have access to the kind of support and guidance they need. But what would be the impact of actually going ahead with this and defunding the police? Well, the truth is, we just don't know. And obviously it would depend on how you do it, how radical you go, how radical you want to go. But we do know is that here in the UK, where the number of police fell over the last decade, the overall amount of crime also fell as well, continuing a trend that's pretty much been going on since the 90s. And we can also look at examples around the world. Although there isn't a model for uh, defunding the police, if we just look across the world, the safest and least violent societies aren't the countries with the biggest prison systems or the most violent or powerful police forces. They're the countries with the highest levels of uh, equality. They're the countries with the most heavy, heavy investments in social and health services or education. And while we can look at the United States, where we often adopt a lot of our criminal justice policies and practices, they're the country that has the largest prison population. The government told us they were delivering the people's priorities by giving the police what they say is the biggest funding increase in a decade. They want to support police forces in recruiting 20,000 more officers over the next three years. And the government says they'll make sure the police have all the funding, powers and resources necessary in order to carry on protecting communities. For those demanding defunding, this is less about abolition and more about remaking their relationship with the state. It's about asking, who are these institutions really for? What inequalities do they enhance? And is there a better way to arrange them? Yeah. We can... Again, I still don't understand why we can't chew gum and walk at the same time. We can fund our schools, fund our homeless, and we're the richest country in America. But the minute that we try to take something from someone else to give it somewhere else, it's a problem. All right. For our final story, it's on marijuana. Uh, did you know where the stigmatism of marijuana came from? Harry Anslinger. Do you know who that is? Uh, next story gives us uh, uh, insight into how racist and the policies work against people of color. Listen to this. The blame for the war on drugs can be laid on many doorsteps, but the man most directly responsible for the federal ban on cannabis and the ferocious criminalization of marijuana possession is one Harry J. Anslinger. 
Anslinger was the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics from 1930 to 1962. And during that time, he concocted a strategy built on hypocrisy, racism, and sensationalist fear-mongering to demonize cannabis that resulted in the marijuana tax of 1937 and nearly 100 years of prejudice against pot smokers. But before we do that, be sure you subscribe to the Weird History channel and leave a comment below. All right, all right, all right. Anslinger had been a longtime proponent of banning alcohol before he became the commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics in 1930, because he had apparently dedicated his life to preventing people from having any fun. However, in those early years, Anslinger believed alcohol to be far more harmful than cannabis, even going so far as to say that the idea that marijuana caused violent behavior to be an absurd fallacy. Remember that absurd fallacy line. It's going to be important later. Anslinger got his wish, and alcohol was prohibited in America for 13 years. But since his job focused so much on fighting alcohol, when prohibition ended in 1933, his job was suddenly in jeopardy. He needed to target a new dangerous substance quickly to justify his paycheck, and he set his sights on cannabis. At that point in the 1930s, it was well known that hard drugs like cocaine and heroin were much more dangerous than marijuana, so consequently, marijuana use was much more common. Anslinger targeted pot for this exact reason, figuring that launching a crusade against a popular drug would create a never-ending budget for his Federal Bureau of Narcotics. That's essentially the same as making people pay a higher fine for jaywalking than drunk driving because more people jaywalk, which is the exact opposite of how laws are supposed to work. Anslinger's strategy was so successful that he was able to remain head of the Bureau for three decades. Retiring in 1962, just before Bob Dylan and the Beatles showed up to really make his life difficult. Anslinger denounced reports of marijuana causing violent behavior as being the very height of absurdity? Well, as soon as he targeted cannabis to be the infinite cash machine for the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, he sought out those very same reports in order to justify his crusade. Anslinger kept gore files filled with violent crimes he thought he could link to the use of cannabis, including one woman who committed suicide by jumping from an apartment balcony and a boy who murdered his entire family with an axe. Marijuana has never been scientifically linked to violent behavior, so the two incidents could have just as easily been blamed on whatever the people in question ate for dinner. Well, meatloaf always makes me ornery. Or, more likely, them having a mental illness. Seems like maybe a department dedicated to the research and treatment of mental illness would be more helpful than throwing people in jail for smoking pot. But, Harry, you do you. You do you. up stories about reefer madness aside, Anslinger was looking for scientific evidence to support his case for a cannabis ban. He contacted 30 different doctors and asked for their medical opinion. Of those 30, 29 said that there was no link between marijuana and violent crimes. You can probably guess what happened next. Anslinger heroically ignored every single medical testimony except the one dissenting opinion that supported his case, highlighting the most extreme claims. He later stated that anyone who challenged this viewpoint was treading on dangerous ground. What a buzzkill. Anslinger wasn't leading the charge against cannabis by himself. 
Infamous publishing magnate, friend of the show, and possible war criminal, William Randolph Hearst lent Anslinger's crusade a great deal of support, primarily to protect his interest in the timber industry. Hearst was pro-Rosebud, but not pro-Bud. He was afraid that hemp paper, which is made from cannabis, would compete with his paper products and take a cut out of his profits. As you might remember from previous episodes of Weird History, Hearst was not a man who valued competition. Hearst wasn't the only one worried that consumers would start writing their crunchy grooves out on hemp paper. The DuPont Corporation also supported Anslinger, fearing that hemp products would overtake their investment in nylon. Have you ever wondered why the official name of cannabis is marijuana? Yeah, I have. Well, Anslinger is behind that too. He helped popularize the term because he believed it would associate the drug with Mexican immigrants. This nakedly racist strategy played on the xenophobia people were feeling about the southern border. It was one of the many ways Anslinger used prejudice to frame cannabis as an invading force out to corrupt white America. And it worked like a charm. Anslinger was clearly not afraid to use racism to advance his campaign against marijuana, so you probably won't be too surprised to learn that he falsely branded cannabis use as an African-American problem. 1930s America was only too happy to agree with him, and his virulently racist rhetoric became one of the most effective tools in his arsenal. Anslinger claimed that African-Americans made up only 10% of the population, but 60% of the addicts, stating that Reefer makes darkies think that they're as good as white men. Keep in mind, this was coming from the head of a government public health organization, so his words did as much damage as possible. Anslinger's racism pockets were pretty deep, and he wasn't afraid to empty them out in his quest to brand marijuana as a threat to society. Another one of his repulsive strategies was to appeal to irrational racist fears that cannabis use would tempt white women into having sex with people of color. Anslinger claimed that most cannabis users were Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers played satanic music. This was considered a legitimate public health crisis in the 1930s. Yeah, so that happened. In addition to greed and racism, another motivator behind Anslinger's campaign to ban marijuana seems to have been his hatred of jazz music. While most crotchety old men would be content to just make fun of it and just listen to the smooth sounds of their teeth grinding, Anslinger took it upon himself to try and eradicate jazz entirely. It's like a villain from Footloose. Anslinger unironically believed that weed gave jazz musicians actual superpowers, arguing that smoking pot allowed them to play at a furious speed impossible for one in a normal state. Sorry, Harry, that's cocaine. I'm looking at you, Clapton. He routinely used his power and position to harass jazz musicians, even going as far as trying to coordinate multiple law enforcement agencies to arrest all musicians in violation of the marijuana laws on a single day. A plan that luckily never materialized. Ugh, thank Coltrane. Anslinger relied on extreme hyperbolic language to push his agenda, and his rhetoric only intensified as he got older. He once said, No one knows when he places a marijuana cigarette to his lips whether he will become a joyous reveler in a musical heaven, a mad insensate, a cum philosopher, or a murderer. Imagine partying with this guy. Hey, could we get Killjoy a fatty over here? Some of his other greatest hits include suggesting that marijuana would scare Frankenstein's monster to death, that if you smoke pot, you'd likely end up murdering your brother, and that marijuana is the most violence-causing drug in the history of mankind. 
claims supported by exactly zero scientific evidence. Most of the myths you've heard about marijuana can be traced directly back to Anslinger, so in a way, he's history's most successful hype man. Anslinger's role in creating the war on drugs is pretty clear, but he can also be credited with helping to create the prison industrial complex. Anslinger's goal to jail people for possession-related convictions has led to the incarceration and exploitation of hundreds of thousands of people, in particular African Americans, a subject recently explored in the documentaries 13th and The House I Live In. Anslinger believed that drug addicts, including people who smoke pot, were beyond pity or treatment, stating that doctors cannot treat drug addicts even if they wish to. He claimed that the only way to keep people safe was to throw killer pushers into prison and throw away the key. Really, we should give smokers a Netflix subscription. Anslinger's racist campaign against marijuana and jazz music collided in a single-minded persecution of jazz legend singer Billie Holiday. Holiday struggled for years against drug and alcohol addiction, and Anslinger hounded her every chance he could. In a truly ghoulish final act of pettiness and hatred, Anslinger had Holiday arrested for possession as she lay dying in a hospital of liver and heart disease. She died handcuffed to her hospital bed with her personal belongings confiscated and an armed police guard at her door. Before she died, Holiday said of Anslinger's crusade, Imagine if the government chased sick people with diabetes, put a tax on insulin and drove it into the black market, told doctors they couldn't treat them, then sent them to jail. We do practically the same thing every day in a week to sick people hooked on drugs. The selective enforcement of Anslinger's anti-drug policies is best illustrated in how he treated white celebrities with drug problems. When he learned that the Wizard of Oz star Judy Garland was struggling with a heroin addiction, he gave her some friendly advice on self-care before assuring her movie studio employers that she didn't have a problem. He somehow managed to do this without handcuffing her to a hospital bed. When he learned of the impending drug arrest of a prominent Washington socialite, Anslinger intervened and squashed it, arguing that it would destroy the unblemished reputation of one of the nation's most honored families. Evidently, one of the symptoms of being a tyrannical bigot is completely losing your sense of irony. Harry J. Anslinger strangely might be one of the most influential men of the 20th century, manufacturing the public animosity towards marijuana almost single-handedly with a campaign of greed, fear-mongering, and racism that we're still feeling the effects of today. Yep. Bigotry. Anslinger. Yep, he used people's fear to to make weed illegal. Why is that? Because he didn't understand it. Uh, we gotta we gotta do better. Um, stigmatism of weed. Weed is not bad, but Hey, too much people are locked up for weed, but opioids? No, they're not locked up for that. It's an epidemic. It's a national health crisis. But you know what? It's all good. They'll get their cup of bits. All right. This is the Commentators Party Podcast. This week we talk about Matt Gates, Trump's CFO waving his right to remain silent. FBI giving Kavanaugh a pass. Texas, great Texas. How are they trying to change whitewash history? And Kristen Cinema, how she voted. Uh, the Republicans blocking a 
uh, a debate on the infrastructure bill. Um, this is Sunday the 25th. Uh, this is the Common Sense Party Podcast. Read us, review us. Spotify. Google. And wherever you get your podcast, you can reach us at Instagram, uh, Facebook, and Gmail. Our oath is to bring the common sense to this thing called life and politics. And with that, we'll see you next week. Time before time, the guardians of Owa created a battery that could channel the power of will. Now all they needed were warriors worthy enough to channel it. Therefore rings were created that could choose worthy beings that could bring peace and justice to the galaxy through the power of will. They are called the Green Lantern slinging a few years down the road and lucky enough to watch your family grow as you honor your oath then you'll understand but getting old in my core is a privilege we die so innocents don't it's that simple once you put on the ring the life you live stops being your own Lost. Not while I'm standing.